to a two-day closed seminar on brain science. And one of the speakers um, talked to us, gave us a picture of why brain science and work with refugees is going to be a really uh, fruitful cooperation. Um, if you are under 12, I'm sure that some of you are under 12 in your hearts, but that doesn't count. If you're under 12, uh, you, are, you have what we uh, call a play, fun, explore life. So you, you just kind of ex enjoy life and you look at flowers and you discover stuff. But if something scary happens... An alert mechanism cuts in, and we, you know, we call it the fight-or-flight response. And if, you don't, if, you, if that continues, you have a thing in your body called cortisol, and cortisol levels go up. But if you are under 12 and mama is there, your cortisol level doesn't go up, even if you felt afraid. So there's something about the presence of that, that mother or it can be a father or an auntie, that in the midst of fear, you don't get the fear response. You get kind of the emotional thing. So this alerted people to the fact that you can actually dampen things that could ultimately be harmful. And now what I mean by that is, if you're a young child and you're constantly afraid and your cortisol level shoots up, then you reach a place where every door that slams, you jump. You're hyper. Everything is scary, and that's a terrible state to be in. If you are over 12, 13-ish, nothing keeps your cortisol level from peaking. It always goes up. If you're talking evolutionarily speaking, that's a good thing, because as an older mammal... If you needed mama to be able to deal with life, then there wouldn't be many of us left around after a couple of thousand years, right? So the fact that nothing dampens that really, uh, that cortisol fear response when you're a teenager. When you get older, what happens? Everybody who's older can say, yeah, we don't have any response, right? We're too tired. <laughs> so we're really concerned about what do you do with young people who are going to have the response? And that's the contribution of brain science to understanding refugees and dealing with the, the back brain, the front brain, what's you know, the MRIs and stuff that help us understand better. But I came along pre-brain science. Some of you, like Jason, may say maybe even pre-brain, you know? <clears throat> so the pre-brain science people are aware that the strength and quality of relationship is the determinant of your emotional stability. In the various silos, you know, there's a, a health silo and a youth work silo and a social work silo. But if you cross the, the silos, in the youth work silo, the most significant thing you can do for a young person is for that young person to have a significant supportive relationship with an adult. Many other things can slide, but if that's there, something else doesn't slide. There was a prospective study done on native uh, Hawaiians in the 50s whose culture was being torn apart by drugs and alcoholism and crime, and so various interventions were planned and then followed up for 50 years. And the one thing that you could know and predict that someone would not be in prison and would not be addicted to alcohol or drugs, the one thing was that they had a mentor for as brief a period as three weeks. This is so powerful, but it's too simple. Okay? So if you're going to put together a youth program or a refugee program or, a, a, you know, a program, you just can't sell something that simple. So you dress it up in a different way, and, and then pretty soon you forget that the core of the thing 
is a personal relationship. So all of this was a preface to our discussions this evening that the critical issue is going to be the personal relationships that are established among and with Syrians. And I just came from Germany where there are a million Syrians or a million, there are some Afghans and Iraqis uh, in the mix. And from Greece where there are other hundreds of thousands of refugees now stranded there. And to be able to remind people that this, we talked a little bit earlier about being a good neighbor, that actually being that good neighbor is the most powerful thing you can do. And because we have this longitudinal in our organization, QuestScope, we've known some of these Syrians who are now in Germany for more than 10 years. Because we've worked in Syria since the early 80s. So we're in a unique position to draw on those long-term relationships and multiply them. And our model for that is the mint plant. Do you guys ever plant mint in your gardens? If you do, it's like crabgrass. One mint plant will take over everything in a year. So that's what we want to do with our Syrian friends. Spread it like mint. I'm open for questions about anything. Um, if you ask me about my marriage, I'll tell you about my wife. I won't confess to anything after 41 years. Okay, but other than that, everything's a go. Yes? What's a nice guy like me doing in the Middle East? You know, How did I come to Jordan? That's really what you meant to say, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what took me there? Did I stay doing what took me there? You know, what did, did I change? <clears throat> I got a job in 1980 as the assistant dean in the School of Public Health at the American University of Beirut. And I was an associate professor in the School of Medicine. Why was I willing to take the job is a little further backstory, but suffice it to say that I took the job. One of the reasons for choosing Beirut, because I had a thing about, I knew that the world was going to be young for most of my life. I always thought I would be too, but it didn't turn out that way, okay? But the world was going to be young. That The gap between rich and poor was the issue, not just being poor. And that Muslims would not, be, not accept degradation. Because the Muslims that I lived among in, the, in Indonesia, were very, their religion is old. Christianity is old. Judaism is old. Theirs is 1,400 years old. It has tradition and history behind it, and it gives them a purpose and meaning, and it's, it has many, many, many beautiful facets. Um, you could say that about Christianity, too, that we have many, many beautiful facets. But from the basic perspective, we, have, we serve a single God, and there's a dignity in doing that. So I had these three things in my head, and I knew from that point on that I was doomed as Frodo is doomed, all right? And that doom meant that I'm going to have to learn Arabic. Because if someone says to me, because I sat in Indonesia, right, in mosques, sit in Indonesia, and you sound out the Arabic letters, and then you have to open an Indonesian commentator who may have been translated from Arabic or translated from Farsi or translated from English or, you know, and then you have to follow what he says those sounds meant. But I already knew Indonesian was my third or fourth language, and I already knew when I was translating for people, if you say something in English, I could make it in five different ways, depending on what I think you're headed for. So I thought, I'm going to be able to read this book and look it up in the unabridged dictionary myself to see what the options were. And of course, being able to do that means that you can defuse a lot of heat you could say, yes, that's a true understanding of that verse. But somebody else had an equally true understanding. Oh, yeah, you knew about Ibn Sina? Yeah, yeah, I knew about Ibn Sina. Oh, okay, well, what else do you know? Well, I don't know much else, but I know a few more things. So I ended up in Beirut in 81. In 82, in one of the invasions of Beirut, at that time, uh, the university stopped giving classes, so I offered my services to do triage for the families of Palestinians. 
who had come up from the camps in the suburbs of Beirut, of Sabra and Shatila. At the end of the active part of the invasion, when these people returned to their homes, they were massacred. And as the CNN cameras panned over the bodies lying on the ground, most of them I knew their names, and all of them I knew their cases. So that really messed me up permanently and forever. So I thought, how can I go on with my career after seeing this? What is it that, you know, the first woman in the first scene of the cameras was mentally challenged. She was in her second pregnancy. She hadn't understood her first pregnancy. She didn't know why she couldn't be in her tiny little house, why big noises were happening called bombs. Is What made it imperative to kill her? That was a question that I wanted an answer to. So that's where our motto comes from, putting the last first. Which means, of course, you must engage people who are at first so that they will put themselves last. So that's why I was in Beirut. That's what happened to me. Um, <clears throat> I'm a slow learner. It's taken me 35 years you know, to, to learn lessons. And if I get 35 more years, I would be there in the Middle East too. I'll plan to kidnap my seven grandsons because we're good at that, right, in the Middle East. So I was going <laughs> to kidnap my seven grandsons, bring them back with me, and just stay there. Most of my friends are not English speakers. Most of them are not Christian background people. Um, and we have been fast friends for decades. We have each other's backs. You say that in English? You know? Uh, so that, that's the answer. That is an answer to that question. You always wanted to know why it's called Quest Scope, right? All right. This is now. There's a true story and a not true story. And the not true story is the public story. You know, Quest Scope is derived from the word quest. That is the you know like the quest for the Holy Grail, a quest for something that changes your life. And the scope is like how far will you go for it, like a microscope, or a periscope, or a telescope. So that's the untrue public story. So that's the public story, and that's the end of the story, guys. I won't tell you that. <laughs> the true story is that in 1987, when we needed to do paperwork to make our organization legal, not that we were illegal, but you've got to be legal, right, if you want to take donations. I wasn't doing anything illegal. Okay. Um, <laughs> My attorney in England, because we're originally a British foundation, told me, he said, well, you know, in England you have to register your organization in two stages. And each stage costs 1,500 pounds, which is about $300, two stages. He said, um, are you, do you have $6,000? I said, no, I don't have $600. He said, well... There was a company called QuestScope that was going to do computer software. And they registered the first stage of it. So they've already paid the $1,500. So if you want a, 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 a discount, you can take their name and you don't have to pay the 1,500 pounds. I said, deal. <laughs> so that's why we're called QuestScope. It's the, it's the permanent mark of poverty. Yes. Very good question and very good perspective on the question. Um, <clears throat> I will give you an example of a group of people in Jordan that hate the government. You know, it's just their thing. They just hate the government. They don't hate the king. They hate the government. Is, you know, in America, we don't do monarchy because our king never changes, right? So he's not actually politically involved. You don't elect him and unelect him. So you've got a government and you've got a king. 
So we're all for the king, but they hate the government because the government taxes them. Okay? And the government tells them where they can or can't park their cars. You know, everybody hates the government, right? So, and every time you have uh, a, a hike in bread prices, the riots always start from that community. And the community itself are squatters in an inner city situation. So, in the 50s, they squatted there. And the city's grown up around them. And for the unfortunate landowner on whose land they squatted, he can never get rid of them because they come from a very strong tribal structure. So you get, get the picture. And if you happen to drive through one of their two streets and you don't go fast enough out, then they will stone your car. If you get out, for sure they'll stone you. All right? So it's kind of a closed society. And uh, they don't like taxi drivers. They don't like anybody who's not their relatives. So you've got 20,000 people in one square mile inside of a city who are a separate world to themselves. And the University of Jordan has a sociology professor who's Jordanian who decided, well, then we need to do social work among these people. So he sent his students, who were Jordanians, and they were all stoned. Now, the interesting thing, if you want a tip on stoning, okay, you always send your six-year-old kids to do the job. Because if a six-year-old kid comes at you with a rock, if you hit him, the whole world will turn against you. So all that, that's what six-year-olds do in that neighborhood. They're always ready with the rock, you know. So, and they stoned the students. So did my homework, did my secondary data analysis, this community was a very homogeneous community with massive social problems. We did a study, actually, for uh, uh, Harvard-Princeton on this that you can go online and, and see. There's another community that was made up of Palestinian refugees where everything was clear, everything was open, but the community is fractured. There's no coherence. So we did a comparison between the two communities. But back in the uh, first community, I thought... We are going to go in this community, and I don't really intend to be stoned, at least with a rock, okay? So, <laughs> you caught that. Okay, you're really good. Um, so, I, I uh, took two tribal Jordanians. Not, we have Palestinians, and we have tribal Jordanians in Jordan. And the one tribal Jordanian was from far north from where these people come from. So there's never been any bad blood. They live too far away. And the other one was a tribe that has existed for a thousand years beside the other tribe, but they're Christians. Christian tribe, Muslim tribe. They don't intermarry. Therefore, you can't have land fights. Who's going to inherit that well? You remember Jacob's well, you know, and fell in with rocks. So it's the Middle East, right? That's what it's like. So they... They knew each other well, and there was never any bad blood. They didn't know each other well, but they're still tribal Jordanians. So I took these two people with me, drove into the center of that little community, and got out, and one of those two Jordanians said, Now what? I said, I'm not sure. <laughs> Honestly, I told you I'm a slow learner. I'm not sure, but I know that I'm strange. So I have to do something that's not. So it's green garlic season. You guys eat green garlics? They're kind of like apples about this big, and they're juicy. And after you eat them, your wife won't let you near her for two days. Okay. <laughs> so I went green garlic shopping. And I spoke the dialect of those people. That was one of my dialects. So suddenly you discover that this person who is from the moon is, might possibly be human. Because he's buying green garlics, which humans do that. And he can talk to us. So then, got me so far. I actually have a point. I'm going to get to the point, okay? But I wanted you to understand the context of, of what, because what we finally did was so simple that I've got to make it complicated enough so you'll know I'm an expert, right? So we, <laughs> not stoned expert. So, I went into the um, 
grocery store, which is about as big as two tables. And it was the days where you, you dial a phone, and when somebody answers, you push in the coin, and you have five minutes only, and then it dies, and you dial again and push in a coin. So I got my wife on the phone, and I talked to her in that dialect. And she doesn't speak that dialect. So on her end of the line, why are you talking to me like this? Why don't you talk to me? And, you know, I can't understand what you're saying. But what I'm saying is, are the girls home from school yet? Has Amira started? My daughter's Amira, you know. Has Amira started her math homework? Is Nadia going to be okay? I'll be home shortly to help her. So I want them to hear that I have kids. And I'm worried about their homework. Because everybody in the thing had kids. And everybody's worried about their homework put the phone down, and in the far back of the little grocery store behind the, the, the dairy counter, you know, it's always the last thing, and you stand behind it. Well, a guy said to me, he says, I know who you are in that dialect. And I said, I saw uh, Gone with the Wind and Scarlett O'Hara, okay? Well, I'm sure you do, <laughs> you know? And he said, don't you want to know how I know who you are? I said, if you want to tell me, said, I'm the guy who sits at the Ministry of Interior, that's the FBI, and hands out the residence permits. Well, I've never met him because we have a guy who does that, right? And he says, but I know who you are, and I know your file. I know everything about you. So everybody's ears are like this, you know. And I said, well, if we keep talking, it's likely that we're related. And of course, that's an impossibility, right? So everybody laughs, and then everybody left the shop. I'm no longer the center of attraction. Whew. So then I turned to the shopkeeper, and I said, so what's it like around here? Now starts the thing. What's it like around here at 8 o'clock? Because I'm not walking in with a clipboard and, you know, from the moon, but I'm human, possibly, okay? At least human enough. So he said, well, man, it's, things really don't get going until 10 in the morning. And I said, well, we went through the whole schedule of the day. And I said, but what about in the evening? He goes, yeah, we, we actually we had a kid killed you know, by a taxi driver. So it pings. No wonder you stone taxi drivers. You know? So we went through some other stuff. Then I asked a group of men, because we had a couple of days of meetings, I said, so do you have any problems here with your youth? Absolutely not. We are good Presbyterians. I mean, they said Muslims, right? But we would say Presbyterians. We're good Muslims. We don't have problems with our youth. And I said, I'm sure, you ha I'm sure that's true. But have you ever asked any of your youth if they would have a problem or two? Well, no. Why should we ask them? It's a patriarchal culture. I said, man, I couldn't think of any reason to ask them. But we brought it up. What do you think if we just ask them? So we wander down to the streets. And, of course, the minute you appear in the streets, there's 7,000 million kids that collect around you. And so we picked some that were 13 or 14 years old and said, you know, what's it like around here, guys, the time, schedule, day? And you got any problems? Oh, we are scared. After that kid was killed by the taxi driver, we developed a special whistle. I said, tell me about your special whistle. So they did it. I can't do it. <clears throat> and I said, so when do you use that? If you're ever downtown and one of us is, you know, you're alone because you're begging or panhandling or hustling, when you hear that whistle, everybody converges to see what's going on with your buddy. And he said, that's why we've, we're not so afraid anymore. So the older men are standing there and going, we never knew this. How did you know this? I said, I'm magic. All right. I did say that. And I said, would you like to learn my magic? And they go, yeah, because I want to teach them about participatory assessments and all this stuff. So I said, so if you give me a couple of weeks, then you will do this by yourself with your own youth. You will come up with your own conclusions, and you will tell me what you found out and what you went done about it. Deal? Deal. So that's how it starts. If the community knows some, you know, we're fairly well known now, so you don't have to go through all the green garlic stuff. 
But you do have to let people know in some way, somehow, that you are actually a human being and that you sort of think they are too. You know, you're not a monkey in a zoo that we're coming here to, to see how many stripes you have on your back, to see what species you are. Long answer, but it was a very good question. <clears throat> Please, sir. Uh, again, a superb question, and I don't have to do quite as long a context thing, okay? Uh, the UN offers three durable solutions, most of which are not working. Durable solution number one is that you go back to your country. So it's not really on for Syria right now. Number two is that you stay in Jordan and you somehow become a Jordanian, which is never going to happen. Okay. Number three is you become, you're repatriated to a third country, which means you come to Canada or Germany or the United States. If you are in that stream, and everybody is in that stream, that is a ballet. If we were doing ballet, the whole stage would be marked out here with squares. I mean, if you've ever done Christmas plays with kids, right? The, this is square number one, and Johnny has to stand here. If Johnny stands in square number two, it's not going to work. So everybody knows in the resettlement of refugees who is supposed to be doing what when. Our only role in resettlement is to make sure that the person who is working the refugee is being treated properly by the UN. So we are advocates. So the UN's role in the ballet is to do all the background checks, verify the, the verbal statements, uh, do the triangulation of, you know, if you say this and we ask him about you and, you and you're not in the room and it doesn't match, so you were tri triangulating. And that process can take two years. Then I, as the UN, am ready to recommend to you as the United States State Department that we have a tray full of people here that you could select from. So then you will go through your same vetting process, which can also take two years. So now you have four years of vetting. And honestly, everybody in the world knows more about a refugee than you know about your second cousin. Okay? Because your second cousin has some secrets. But a refugee has no secrets. So those are the kinds of people that are on offer to Canada, to the United States, not to Germany. Okay, we'll do Germany in a minute. But we're far enough away that people can't reach us by a rubber dinghy or just walking. Um, so if they reach us as refugees, they've been through three or four years of that kind of serious vetting. Very serious. And refugees, I mean, I was talking with Lynn, who yourself was a refugee in a refugee camp. But refugees are very gentle people because they've been beat around and hit and hurt and taken advantage of for so much that they don't, they don't do that. You know, they're, they're at the end. They know that, you know, I, the only thing that I have as a refugee is in your eyes, am I going to be a human being or not? That's one of the things that makes them gentle. Plus, the Syrians are middle-class refugees. If you strip me of my car, my house, my mortgage, all of my clothes, my bank account, and everything, I can't hustle in the streets. I don't know how to cheat you. It'll take me two or three years to learn to do that. You know? So that's where these people are coming from. They're just... So gentle. Did I get all the question there? Maybe not. It seems like there was something more that I... I, mean, I, I fear. The fear I part. We're afraid of Muslims. We're afraid of Muslims. They're too other. 
They wear funny clothes. When they talk, they sound funny. You know, we, we equate a refugee with an extremist, you know, the, and everybody says, well, look what happened in Brussels. It could happen here. The guys in Brussels were not refugees. They were legal immigrants, not completely legal. There was one or two of them that weren't. But they were not refugees. They were, remember we talked earlier about the management of savagery? They were the young people that were targeted to be savage and violent. It takes a lot to turn a person into a killer. You know, who is the anthropologist here again, okay? Um, I have, uh, I can actually give you a nice summary that, that I do when I go to Brown University, all right, because Brown needs good summaries. Um, about the, st- the steps that you, that you have to go through emotionally to become a terrorist. And you get to step five, and you're almost not redeemable by then. But there's still steps one, two, three, four, five, and some people say there's actually eight. So we're afraid. Uh, was it Franklin Roosevelt who said the only thing that we really have to fear is fear itself? Why are we afraid? You know, we, we put children's pictures on milk cartons. But most abuse to children and most kidnapping happens with somebody that the child already knows. But now suddenly we're afraid of everybody. You know, why are we afraid of everybody? You know, we're afraid of each other. Even in Sunday schools, you can no longer, you, you, only you can pick up your child, you know. And the nursery school teacher, you've got to be ID'd because there's legal issues and all that. We are so afraid. Are we supposed to live in fear like this? If we stay in fear, the next step is how we will be manipulatable. All right, And that's when you create mobs and people who do things that if they were in their right mind, they wouldn't do. So there's a bigger thing going on in America, even bigger than our visible political process. We are just afraid. We're afraid. In the juvenile correctional system in Damascus, Syria, we've been working there since 1998, and we still are. Juvenile corrections in Damascus, Syria. Imagine, who could be doing that, right? And in the first, back to how you enter a community, juvenile corrections or incarceration, we went in and the place is dismal. It's that gray institutional paint that bubbles up and then it peels and nobody does anything about it. It just gets grayer and grayer. So one of the first things you do is you paint everything. You scrape it, you get the lead out, all that stuff. But then you sit down with the staff and the, the boys, because it's a gender-segregated facility. And we said, so we're going to do a participatory assessment. And so all the staff go off and do your participatory assessment and all the youth. And you have to write the results on a piece of, uh, what do you call it? You know, uh, it's big and white, and you write on it. Flip chart, flip chart. Okay. Um, and then you come back into the room and you say, okay, one, two, three, and turn your flip charts. And the kids wrote, their biggest problem is that they're terrified of the staff. What did the staff write? Their biggest problem is they're terrified of the youth. So they looked at each other and said, but you don't have, literally, each, if they said it together, you don't have to be afraid of us. We're afraid of you. And then they all looked and said at the very same time, so why are we afraid of each other? We've got to create a space in our society where we don't have to be afraid. And it'll require some bravery. But that doesn't, and that doesn't require a lot of risk to be brave. Okay? It requires a lot of hope. It requires a lot of hope. So, yes, we, uh, Canada, for example, has taken 25,000 people, and they were all vetted. Um, and we have Syrians who, we work, who worked with us in Zatari camp in Jordan, and they're trained. So when this young man finally gets his, the English under his belt so he can study at McKell, at, uh, what is the university there? McGill. Um, then he's going to be our guy for the Syrian community, uh, along with three or four others, 
So we can take the Syrian community really fast because we've got Syrians who know them, who know how to work with them, who have experience in social work now, which nobody in Syria had before. We will do the same in Germany. Now, Germany is more like what we're afraid of. They didn't have a chance to vet all of those people because they self-selected. And they went from Turkey, boats, Greece, Macedonia, Serbia, Croatia, Hungary. You don't say Hungary. Hungary, okay? Uh, Into Austria and into Germany. So there was no vetting. So the Germans have accepted them, and they, now they're going through their vetting and asylum process. So it works either way, but for people to get to America, man, it's going to be, you're going to be dipped in layers and layers and layers of whitewash. To, you know, you'll be pure. But we don't need to be afraid. Come on, we've got Jesus. Why, why would we need to be afraid after that? Yes? Yep. That's a very good question. So, referring to the woman that I referred to who was killed in the massacres, who is mentally challenged, do we have a lot of mentally challenged or mentally ill people? Um, probably not any different than the normal percentage in the population. Okay? Emotional disturbance is a different issue. Okay? Because when you've been so shocked emotionally, Um, I would say mental uh, mental illness, about the same as a normal population. But mental health issues are a different story. Because that's where you have to help people talk about what happened. You have to provide some measure of understanding about what's going on in yourself as a result of that. And creating the, uh, it needs a kind of a counseling. And some people respond very well, just the normal bell curve. Some people respond very well and fairly quickly to a minimal amount of counseling. Some people need slightly longer, and some percentage, it's just like the normal population. Uh, One of the problems that Syrians have is that that's generally done in your own language best, and there are very few counselors who speak Arabic well enough to, to do that. But that, too, will change because Syrians are now studying that stuff and they will use it in their language one day. Yes? So what do I feel about short-term teams and the value that they may or may not bring? Um, It depends on the team. If you're going to have a team of doctors, then those are certain skills. But you generally need a certain kind of doctor so, uh, are you guys familiar with Operation Smile? It, you know, it does cleft palate surgeries. So, we actually have very good medical... Uh, leave Syria out of the picture, because we did have very good stuff. Okay? Um, so, Syria is a slightly different thing. But you can't get into Syria anyway. Okay? Um, so, yes, for professional people... Uh, and here are the ethnic Arabs in the United States who grew up speaking Arabic, but they may have studied psychology somewhere. Those people are golden, okay, because the language is the biggest obstacle. But there's no uh, a short. The issue of being a short term is not an obstacle. It's who you are and what you've been invited to do, and under what structure. The interesting thing comes if you're uh, a sophomore in college or high school senior if you come to the Middle East you're going to leave changed it's all about you and that is good all right but that's not for Syrians but that is really good for, for the volunteers for the volunteers yeah so if if I were a church I would make sure that I sent some high school seniors and then I also sent some people who have 10 years of experience in building websites so that you can capture from the Syrians. Remember, we got a media guy there, you know? Capture what he's got and put it in something that communicates to the West. You know, uh, just as an example, what kind of magazine appeals to Americans? You open the page, and there's three words on the page. 
and half a person's face, right? We don't like a lot of jumble. An Arab thinks if you just use that, you don't have nothing to say. Every column inch should be filled with words and tiny little pictures, you know? It's a different cultural way of thinking about how you communicate information. So get the stuff that's really real, that Syrians really want, and say, now that's fine for your Arabic website, but Americans are never going to look at that. You know, give us the, the arm that you want to show in three words, and then we'll work on that. So there's tremendous need for cooperation, communication, collaboration. And, you know, the, I, was, I was actually young once, okay? And I had really, really long hair. I was a hippie. And it was curly and kind of sandy blonde, you know? And I had a mustache, none of this millennial beard stuff. Uh, threw rocks at police to fight, you know, the Vietnam War, war stuff. Um, and I, I, I was changed by my first experience in the, middle, in the Far East. So invest in your young people and don't confuse it. And, uh, there's, we've had a conversation or so, a different kind of conversation with you. But invest in both ends. Yeah. Yes, sir. If I'm missing anybody back there, are you and then you. So don't let me forget you. Uh, you want us to leave tonight? Okay, this, this is a really powerful question, okay? So the first one about being good neighbors is where, where people are the best good neighbors. Is that, did well, I get I it? Figure, are there countries around the world that are helping Syrians in a way that be a good neighbor? Ah, okay. So we can use that in my mind as a role model. They go, oh, that's a good neighbor. They're doing good things. And I have something to compare. Yeah, got it. Well, certainly in Canada... They're being good neighbors. In Canada, the federal government brings you there and gives you, you know, a three-month subsidy or something to get your feet under you. Um, and then churches and organizations actually adopt you. That's pretty close to what happens in the United States, too. Okay? Um, in Germany, the federal government of Germany has accepted a million people can be there. And then they, if your village has 3% of the population of Germany, then you get 3% of the refugees. And you get a call the day before you get them that you're going to have 300 refugees that you feed, clothe, and house and teach them German. God be with you. And so these small towns, you know what they do to pay for this? They raise their property taxes. Well, here we are as Americans owning property. What would you feel like if somebody raised your property tax for a stranger on your shore? You know, these people are heroes. Yeah, okay, we don't want this. Maybe it'll only be for a couple of years. Okay, raise our taxes, and we will be volunteers. And they, you know, so there's a lot of heroism in the, in the German situation. In Greece, of course, Greece is going down the tubes economically. So I'm told, okay, I'm not an economist. And even in Greece, people who have nothing will turn out to help feed Syrians. So each country has got a slightly different way to put on the Good Samaritan coat and be a good neighbor. Um, Hungary is not that the case, okay? We've all seen pictures of Hungary, and we also all saw the Hungarian photographer who tripped the refugee fleeing with his son. Um, but there are complications behind Hungary, too. Because if Syrians go in and take lower-paying jobs, then those guys in Germany right now are Hungarians. So there's the issue of raking my rice bowl. So these are not refugee issues. These are issues of economy and structures, of, of flows of capital and stuff like that. These are things that, I mean, this is the United States of America. We have too much information, so we can't absorb it.
but you would have to pick out some places that I need to be zeroed in on some information so I have some background for this. And I could suggest some websites to, to f- actually their feeds, you know, that send you stuff. And the last part of your question was... We're a sleeping giant right now because our Congress does not allow us to think about having Syrians. Okay? So we have, we have tremendous goodwill, tremendous resource, tremendous experience. You know, we, we've absorbed Hmong and Laotian and Vietnamese and Cuban and Haitian and Eritreans. And, you know, we, this is what we do, right? That's what Americans are. We're a mongrel group, okay? But we're not allowed to do that right now. So we're a sleeping giant. But we're a sleeping giant with an awfully good heart, as in good intent. Yes? What does ministry look like to you to figure out? What does ministry look like? I actually... Were we talking about that a little earlier, Jason? What, what did we say about that? Because uh, Jason kept me up till 2 a.m. last night talking. So it's, uh, um, I'll give an example, and then we'll tease backwards from that. If you can tell, man, I've been gone from the United States so long that all I do is spin stories, you know. And then I can uh, extract uh, the principles we have a, a lot of churches that are supporters of Questcope, and they like to come out and see Questcope in action. And a number of those churches are fairly... Um, I'm struggling for the word in English. It, evangelical, okay? Evangelical churches. I was going to say fundamental, but that doesn't work, right? It's evangelical. Um, and they inquire generally about, do you know about the bridge and do you have peace with God and this kind of, which the, the uh, Muslims are, are quite interested in this concept that you could make a contract with God, you know. Uh, it would be like in the Old Testament, if God speaks to you, you think you're going to be burned to cinders. But in the evangelical churches, people will sit around and say, this morning the Lord spoke to me in my quiet time. And when a Muslim hears that, he's thinking, then why are you still alive if God spoke to you? So it's a cultural viewpoint. So we've had lots of uh, evangelical missions committee people come out. And they generally are aware somehow that Muslims have a problem with the Trinity. We sang about it today. You know, We have more than one God. He's kind of three, but kind of one. And I don't know that any of us in this room could ever really explain that too well anyway. It's part of the mystery. So you get people who are trying to probe Muslims and find out just, you know, how can we certify you as believers in the Trinity? Because we need to do that, you know. You've got to be certified. And um, so one of our staff, he, somebody was asking him questions, trying to move in on it. And so he, he kind of said, he, the Muslim said, do you understand this Trinity thing? And the Methodist said, I have nothing against Methodists. Some of my best friends are Methodists, okay? Um, he said, what? What do you mean? Ashraf said, well, the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's generally derived from understandings of the Spirit of God, and God is a Father, and God the Son, if he drew on things from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he said to the method, he said, is this making sense to you? <laughs> My point in saying this is that Muslims are schooled in Christianity. They know our book. They have some misconceptions. We don't know anything about their book. And we know terribly little about our own. You know? So ministry is really about accompanying people where you find them in their understanding, like 
I think I mentioned earlier to this group that in the two, almost 2,000 staff and volunteers we have in Syria, there are people whose close family members have killed close family members of others. And there are Sunnis and Shiites and Ismailis and uh, Yazidis and Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholic Christians. And uh, Roman Catholics can be Latin right or they can be Greek right. I mean, it all came from out there, right? So I could go on for de- just with Orthodox denominations, 15 different ones. And they don't like each other more than others don't like them. You know? That's just the way it is. So when you find people who've been faced such horrible suffering, then that starts to erase some of these things that don't matter. And so spiritual growth starts to happen. And that's really what we are trying to espouse is the spiritual growth. Please. Um, you have to build that pyramid. So if you have a class of 20, young, 20 younger children who are discovering... I mean, we, our education thing kind of smells like Montessori. Okay? So that's on a small scale. So you need lots of people who can do Montessori so that you can have this pyramid to cover 3,000 kids. But it's really a teacher and 20 kids. And then another teacher and 20 kids. And then they're supervisors of those teachers. So once you start having fun activities, I mean, we have ice cream in Zachary, okay? As we have a generator. And we, we have air conditioning, okay? So when it's 50 degrees centigrade, which it will be shortly, and it will be 50 degrees, 50 degrees is 134 Fahrenheit all day long for three months. And it will dip down to 120 in the evening. Well, that feels pretty good after 150, okay? So we have a space that the, the logistics of the space welcomes, as well as the relationships. And kids just want to feel, one, I'm having fun. Two, I, I, grad, I finished something. I'm finished with first grade. Or I'm finished with third grade. Or I did all the maths that I'm supposed to do this year. So you have to have a sense of progression as well as a sense of fun. And that's done by taking it down to a level of 20 kids and an adult, 20 kids and an adult, 20 kids and an adult. Yes? Thank you. Next question. <laughs> um, actually, you got me, Okay. I'm in a transition succession stage, and I'm, as a founder director, I'm the guy that everybody's worried they're going to have to throw me under a bus to get me out of here, you know? Um, I have a Jordanian director and a Syrian director who pretty much make their own decisions, and they have taken responsibility now for finding the funding for their decisions. Okay, uh, because we had a board member a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away who said once that, well, we are raising the money. They have to do what we say. And I thought, okay, that comes from the 19th century. I can, I can do that if it was the 19th century. So that meant that I had to put special emphasis in communicating to the board that when a person gets the authority, that they also get the responsibility. Um, I uh, there's a couple of things I like to like to do. I like to cook, and I like to cook very complicated recipes. So it might take three days to do reduce the sauces. And my wife thinks I'm bonkers. Okay, so she will sit on Friday because that's our Sunday and watch me cook in the kitchen all day. And knit or do um, crochet or, you know, there's a lot, there's small things I don't know the words for. Um, And with her feet up, just watching me like, you are such an idiot. But she will eat it. You know, it's like Henny Penny. Who's going to help me make the bread? Nobody. But when it comes time to eat. Um, So I like to do that. So I don't really have time to be directing an organization like I used to. I also, for those of us who are Cana-type Christians, 
because they served wine in Cana, right? Okay. I really like single malt scotch. Okay. <laughs> not all the time, not every day. Okay. It's uh, weddings, you know, that kind of thing. But that's fun to sit with friends and drink and talk. I like to do that. And I like to have wild ideas. So when we meet Syrians in Germany that we knew from Syria, then I can see, ah, within two years, we could have a very strong base of Syrians who could be Quascopian Syrians uh, in Germany um, with their own programs and building their own funding base. So that's the kind of stuff I like to do. So that means that I have to have the organization ready, one, to carry forward the vision as we know it, and two, to be creative as they will be. As, uh, my Jordan director asked me once, he said, are you going to allow us to make decisions? I said, why, of course. I said, but, he said, what if we make a decision that you don't agree with? And I said, then I'll be right up your nose. Okay? And you will have to explain to me why you did that decision and defend it. And if I buy it, I don't have to agree, right? But if I buy the logic, then the next time you do that, I'll only get near your nose. And the third time, I won't even know that your nose is there. So, and now they're, they're, they've done it once, okay? So I'm, I don't have to go up the nose anymore. But all this to say is they are skilled. It, I'm, I used to be a medical educator, right? So you can't turn people loose that aren't highly trained. You can't turn people loose who haven't been supervised in their first few attempts to do a cut down on an artery or something. But after that, you expect them to do what they have been told. And we used to tell our medical students at the American University of Beirut, in, three, in six weeks, we can teach you all you need to know about cardiac surgery. And then for the next three years, we'll teach you what to do when none of that works. All right, so I'm at the stage now with Questscope that they're pretty much finished with the, the years of, you know, what Kurt told you years ago, and it didn't work. Now you know why it didn't work, and you've got your own base to make decisions from. Would I like to, what would I like to see? I would like to see every single Arab under 30, and that's females or males, have a mentor. Every single one. No exception. I will not see that before I die. But I've pu I'm putting that virus in the heads of my boards and of the staff. There, and then if we have a minute, we'll come back to you. You mean like hard heads? Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't had to face one that had a knife pointed at my neck, okay? But I've certainly been in the room with people who are, say, one step away from not being in the room with me, you know, finishing me off. So the, before the last step type critter, yeah, I've, I've been around those people. There's no talking to them. But the problem with us as human beings is that we're not finished. You know? Next week, I'm going to be slightly different than I am today. I mean, I hope, right? Um, and so I've seen, uh, I've been out there long enough for 35 years. I've seen people that I wrote off. This guy has so much concrete in his head that it'll never get out. And it got out. You know? Oh, yeah. I've seen it go both ways. I've seen guys be radicalized, and I thought, man, I wish I'd been there for that particular step. And I've seen it happen the other way, that I wish I was there for that step so I could take some credit for the change. But you know. So it goes both ways. Because we're human beings, and we're a mess. You know? We are a real mess.
Actually, it's easier in the Arab world. Is mentoring, you know, is a response to mentoring different between East and West? It is different in the Arab world. In the Arab world, uh, young people who are 16, would, they want, they crave that relationship. In the United States, it's been so many years and so many generations that nobody cared that you, you, it got a much harder deal here. And in the United States, why should you trust anybody? Everybody's taken advantage of you, you know? So we, it's harder here, guys. It is really harder here. You know, if, if anybody works with young people in the United States, my hat is off to you because I have a much easier job. Because where I live, people still want kids to belong, and kids still want to belong. So don't have pity on me. All right? Pray for me, but, you know, uh, have pity on, the, on the, the culture around us that is destroying us and destroying our young people. Thank you.